Hello and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 16, Part 2, The First Gentleman of England. So last episode, I left us on a very sad point. King George III had sadly lost his beloved daughter Amelia and descended into his mental illness once more. This then again brought about George Augustus, the Crown Prince, into the spotlight insofar as his ruling of the United Kingdom went. He was the heir apparent with a father who was ruling as king, regardless of his mental state. But that was the point. George was unable to rule, and so Parliament decided that they again had to establish a regency. Now, it didn't matter so much last time as they began to set this up, as the king had recovered, but it was a lot worse this time. Because technically, the king had to sign off on having a regency. Weird, I know. So Parliament did their best to ensure that checks and balances were in place. Taking the long view with hindsight, I don't think they really needed to have worried George Augustus was still a party animal, remember? So Parliament's Lord Chancellor affixed the King's seal of the realm to what were called letters patent. These were legal documents from the King or Queen. But the documents lacked what was called the Royal Sign Manual. And that is a royally exotic way of saying they didn't have the King's signature. To move past this problem, both the lower and upper houses of Parliament passed resolutions that allowed for the seal the Lord Chancellor had used to be the same as the King signing off on the document and effectively being the same thing as the Royal Sign Manual. Sorry, I just love that phrase. In this way, this made the letters patent, those documents purportedly from the ruler himself, legal documents. The letters named a group of what are known as Lords Commissioner, and also known as a Royal Commission, this group of men could basically do the same legal tasks as the King. Among these tasks was the opening and closing of Parliament. Now, this was really important, because without the King's permission, you didn't have a Parliament, so nothing legally could be done. Basically, Parliament all agreed that the Lord Chancellor's signature let him create a group that could sign off on legal papers as if they were the king. Keeping up so far? Excellent. Now that they could actually have a legal Parliament, and that it was open for business, the Parliament passed what became known as the Regency Act 1811. Despite what we often see in media dramas and having the royal usurper take the throne through Machiavellian machinations, normally a regency was a council of some description. However, this was different. The parliament was happy to make George Augustus sole regent, 
After all, he was the heir to the throne anyway, so it wasn't like he needed some sort of tricky Game of Thrones, Cersei Lannister-style moves to take power. And thus, on February 5th, 1811, George Augustus became known as the Prince Regent. This created what we know today as the Regency Era. More on that another time. We still have lots to do here. Remember a few minutes ago when I was talking about checks and balances and making sure that the Prince Regent was kept in check on possible power games and it wasn't going to mean much really putting those restrictions in place? This is where it comes into play and changes the political structure of the United Kingdom. Because George the Prince Regent really wasn't invested in playing with power. You guessed it, he was too busy partying. George let the ministers pretty much take full charge of all the government's affairs. He was too busy with his own affairs, but we'll let that one slide. And so he only played a minor role in influencing what was passed by Parliament. Up until this time, the man who was Prime Minister was a person that was pretty much the King's current favourite. But with the Prince Regent pretty much not paying attention, Parliament went on to choose a Prime Minister who just wasn't a lackey to the man in charge. I can't do it justice in describing just how much this changed political power working in the realm. In a subtle but critical way, this stepped Parliament away from a strong degree of royal influence to one of a more democratic government of the people and for the people. That's a great phrase. I should copyright that. Anyway, with George not really caring about Parliament, the Prime Minister became the person supported by the majority in the House of Commons. For those of us outside the UK, this is like the lower house of the two in Parliament. This episode is really an overview, so I'm not going to bog down in details, but think for a moment how having a man in charge that was deemed competent to run the country day to day is so different from having a man in charge who was there to serve at the whims of the king. And aside from this, George Augustus, the Prince Regent, was still ostensibly in charge, and George had to preside over one of the most important political conflicts in the realm. Catholic Emancipation These days in Western societies, we really don't think too much about religious freedoms. We tend to go with a utilitarian attitude of, if you don't hurt others, do what you like. But back then, it was a really serious issue. Catholics weren't trusted because ultimately, their loyalty was to the Church of Rome, and more importantly, to the Pope. If the Pope said something... Catholics were expected to follow his word more so than any government that might have been in temporal power. And I'll take you out of the Victorian era for just a moment. You think this was an issue for just back then? Well, in our modern times, we saw John Kennedy's rise to the American presidency described as Camelot. But when JFK became president in 1960, his Catholicism was a real concern for many Americans. Have a listen sometime to his inaugural speech. He directly addresses this and says he is there for all Americans. But back to us now, we're in the 1800s again, and as I said, Catholics were seen as untrustworthy because of their loyalty in Parliament. 
and as such, by law, Catholics were not allowed to sit in Parliament. That might have been tolerated in England, but in Ireland this was a sore point to say the least. Although in decline in our time, as of the 2016 census, 78% of Ireland was Catholic. Now, this figure, of course, would have been higher back then, but you started to get some idea, and this meant that the majority of the population had no choice in the decisions that created the country that they lived in. Naturally, the Conservative Party, also known as the Tories, were opposed to Catholics having emancipation. And you guessed it, the opposition, the more liberal Whigs, supported it. Now that George Augustus was regent, the Whigs expected the Prince Regent to support the Whig leader, William First Baron Grenville. Even as regent, George had the power to dismiss Parliament and could have then forced the Parliament to accept the Baron Grenville as Prime Minister and brought the Whigs to office. This would have certainly helped the cause for Catholic emancipation. And do I need to remind you that his longtime mistress, Maria, was a Catholic? I mentioned before his other mistress, Isabella, had a great influence on his thinking. Now, she'd been around since 1807 and, as I said earlier, had had a fundamental influence on his political worldview. Before Isabella, we might have thought, and the Whigs certainly expected it, that George would bring in the Whigs to power and this would be allowing them to then change the laws for Catholics. Instead, George, the Prince Regent, went public stating that a dismissal of the current Conservative Tory government would exact too great a health toll on his father, who had been a strong supporter of the Tories. I think you might be starting to get some idea of what sort of leader the Prince Regent was. He would use any excuse he could to avoid the confrontation with political rivals. Later in 1812, the Tory Prime Minister Spencer Percival was assassinated and the Whigs thought that they were in with a chance at power then and also promoting their agenda of Catholic emancipation. The House of Commons in Parliament wanted what he called a quote, strong and efficient administration, end quote. And rather than replace the entire Tory ministry with Whigs, the Prince Regent said that they could have Richard Wellesley, First Marquess Wellesley, as their Prime Minister. Wellesley was known as a supporter of Catholic emancipation. But the catch was that the ministry in control would have to have members from both parties. Everyone wanted power for themselves, so naturally... No one agreed to this. The Prince Regent then suggested Francis Rawdon Hastings, 2nd Earl of Moira. Rawdon Hastings was also a Catholic supporter, so in each case the Prince Regent was putting forward men that made it look like the ruler was trying to support the Catholic community. But again, George Augustus insisted that the ministry must have members of both parties. So on one hand, he was looking like he was trying to help the Catholics, but his ministry requirements effectively undermined the choices. George knew that the Tories and Whigs had no intention of sharing their power. In a canny bit of political work, he used them all and made them look bad, and he could be all, hey, sorry, I really tried, but they won't get together on this. And so setting things up nicely for himself, the Prince Regent then appointed the previous Tory administration under Conservative Robert Jenkinson 
second Earl of Liverpool as Prime Minister. Napoleonic Wars were still going on, even with the King of Great Britain incapacitated and his son playing the odd game of politics in London. In 1814, a meeting of ambassadors from various European countries occurred in Vienna. It was largely focused on securing stability throughout Europe as the wars drew to an end and was, surprising no one, called the Congress of Vienna. If you have listened to my podcast on George III, or hey, you might have known it anyway, but the kings in England during this time were known as the Hanoverians. With Queen Anne's death in 1714, King George I was the first Hanoverian, having come from what was called the Electorate of Hanover in what today is northwestern Germany. Well, at this congress, it was decided that since the King of Great Britain had been in charge of Hanover since taking the throne, it might as well have become a kingdom in its own right. So King George III now became King of Hanover, even though with his illness it's doubtful he ever understood this. And thus George the Prince Regent was also Prince Regent of Hanover as of 1814. The following year in 1815, the Battle of Waterloo happened and covered Arthur Wellesley in immortal glory, as he became the first Duke of Wellington. And if you're saying to yourself, Arthur Wellesley? That's the same family name as the guy the Prince Regent offered the PM job to. Well, good on you. Because Arthur was the brother of the aforementioned Richard Wellesley, first Marquess of Wellesley. Some families really make high achievers, don't they? With the end of the Napoleonic Wars, George the Prince Regent could really indulge himself in more important matters than those of the defence of the realm. You know, like fashion. Yes, that's right. Despite the plethora of ladies that spent time in the royal bedchambers, George was a bit of a peacock, to understate it. From a young age, he had enjoyed everything about having a flashy new outfit. His fashion styling led to the title The First Gentleman of Europe, and it should come as no surprise that the famous dandy, Beau Brummel, was among his acquaintances. As he grew older, though, the fashionable tailoring became kind of pointless, given the amount of weight he was putting on. At the time of his death, he had a massive 50-inch waist, and there is no way of making that look good in the clothes of the time. But he kept having uniforms made that made him look like he was a part of the military, which was kind of sad. Everyone knew that he had never been allowed by his father to be in charge of more than a token regiment of men around the palace. It was kind of like one of those socially embarrassing things where everyone looks at each other about it and no one says anything. His other passion, and to be honest, I really think he had much more success here, was architecture. And in this aspect, he nailed immortality as he commissioned works by the brilliant architect John Nash. Nash pretty much created what became known as the Regency style. Think classic Greek inspirations as well as Indian styling. 
Nash was the lead architect on the Royal Pavilion, the Marble Arch and also Buckingham Palace. Regent Street and the terrace houses of Regent's Park are, unsurprisingly, other good examples. But even this rush to build in the financially flush years after the Napoleonic Wars was underwritten by George's insecurities. He was an avid Francophile and he wanted to be seen as a bigger patron of the people with a greater city than the man who had dominated Europe, Napoleon Bonaparte. George continued trying to emulate the former emperor and it just came off as looking sad and desperate for approval. But we did get some amazing buildings out of it, so hey, there is that. He'd started spending as soon as his regency had started, and by the time Napoleon fell in 1815, it was almost as if George had done all the heavy lifting himself in freeing Europe. To George, at least. To anyone else, they knew the truth. Somewhere inside George, he must have known this, because his use of alcohol and the drug laudanum had increased over the years. Laudanum is a liquid containing about 10% opium and obviously is highly addictive, and the Prince Regent was using this on a daily basis. On the marriage front, things were going as well as his control of his daily laudanum intake. Princess Caroline had left the United Kingdom in 1814 and didn't return for years. And I'm sure you can guess the reason for her return. In 1820, the already heavily infirmed King George III died. The Prince Regent was now King George IV. And naturally, Princess Caroline chose to return to attend her husband's coronation and take the title of Queen. Then it all just becomes a debacle. George refused to acknowledge Caroline as his queen. To top that off, he also instructed all the British ambassadors around the world in foreign courts to not recognise her either. It's a nice little vindictive twist of the knife, I think. Naturally, at this time, the new king started seeking a divorce, but his advisers warned him against it. If he had pursued this course of action, they believed that all the affairs that the king had been having would come to public notice and would cause even more scandal to the royal family. So, in another way to try and force the divorce through, George introduced a bill into Parliament called the Pains and Penalties Bill. If it passed, it meant that George would be divorced from Carolyn. Of course, there's a lot more to it than just that, and I'll get to the details another time. But all we need to know here is that part of the paperwork submitted to Parliament was all the evidence that Carolyn had been having an affair with the head servant of her household. Dun, dun, dun. Now, it actually passed through the upper house and was then, as per procedure, to go to the House of Commons. However, Carolyn was really popular with the public, and so in an attempt to maintain a stable perception of the people in power, the House of Lords withdrew the bill, and so it never really had a chance to see the light of day. And no doubt, in a fit of pique, George decided to exclude his wife from his coronation which was held at Westminster Abbey on July 19th, 1821. And on that day, Carolyn fell ill, dying a few days later on the 7th of August. Tragic coincidence? Well, 
Carolyn didn't think so, saying before she died that she thought she had been poisoned. George's coronation cost more than 20 times that of his father, more than £21 million in today's money. It did prove to be a very popular event, however. The public loved it. Later that year, George became the first monarch since Richard II to visit Ireland, and it was a gap of 500 years. Gives you some idea of just how the monarchy treated their own subjects just across the water. In the following year, he was the first monarch since the mid-1700s to visit Scotland. Despite this travelling, the king spent most of his later reign in seclusion at Windsor Castle. But he still kept mucking around in politics, acting like he knew what he was doing. Remember how he avoided promoting Catholic emancipation because it might affect his father's health? Well, with George III dead, that excuse was gone. So now he said he couldn't support it because part of his coronation oath said that he had to uphold the Protestant faith. So, no help to the Catholic subjects there. In 1828, when the Duke of Wellington became Prime Minister of England, his king then claimed he had been at Waterloo for the great defeat of Napoleon. How had he been there? Why, disguised as a German general, of course. So, why was he saying this? Because he knew it annoyed the Duke. That's the only reason. They weren't the best of friends, and in pettiness, the king took delight in aggravating his prime minister. In 1829, George relented to pressure and allowed the duke to introduce a Catholic relief bill. But then the king's own brother, the Duke of Cumberland, a staunch anti-Catholic, pressured the king to withdraw his support. So the bill was going to fail. Parliament had had enough and resigned en masse on March 4th, 1829. Bowing yet again to pressure, the next day the king agreed to the bill. And that pretty much sums up his political abilities. And the king's health was about the same as his political ability. Yes, that bad. George had become obese while he was still regent and was a target of ridicule for his size. Weighing over 240 pounds or 110 kilos, he suffered from gout, arteriosclerosis, peripheral edema, I think I got that right, which is where your body retains way too much fluid, and possibly, like his father, porphyria. At times he would spend days in bed suffering spasms of breathlessness. By 1828, he was almost completely blind from cataracts and the gout was so bad he couldn't sign documents. He was taking massive amounts of laudanum to reduce bladder pain as well before each of his rare public appearances. By 1830, he was over 280 pounds and so blind that he signed documents with a stamp in front of witnesses. He had to sleep upright and doctors would drain excess fluid from his abdomen. But to the respect of those around him, he hung on to life. Even the Duke of Wellington was amazed. In April 1830, the Duke wrote that the King's breakfast had been, quote, a pigeon and beef steak pie, three parts of a bottle of Moselle, a glass of dry champagne, two glasses of port, and a glass of brandy, followed by a large dose of laudanum, end quote. The king's doctor, Sir Henry Halford, 
was seen by observers as more interested in his social ambitions and as being incompetent in his duties. Kind of like Michael Jackson's doctors, really. The famous medical journal The Lancet would later describe Halford's information on the king's health as, quote, utterly and entirely destitute of information, end quote. The article would then go on to say that administering such high levels of opium and laudanum lacked sense or direction. By May 1830, George had dictated his will, had confessed to the archdeacon his regrets over his dissolute life, and, interestingly, he had hoped for mercy, saying he had always tried to do his best by his subjects. And it was in the early hours of June 26, 1830, that King George made use of his toilet and then collapsed. The doctor and the king's private secretary rushed to his aid. His lips grew livid, his head slumped as he held his pageboy's hand. My boy, said the king, this is death. George IV, King of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland and King of Hanover, was dead. He had been king for 10 years and died at age 67. It was later determined that he had died of a ruptured blood vessel in his stomach a large tumour the size of an orange was also found attached to his bladder and with having an enlarged heart and heavily calcified valves. He was buried in St George's Chapel, Windsor Castle on July 15th, 1830. So who ruled then? Well, sadly, George's daughter Charlotte had died years before after giving birth to a stillborn son. Next in line would have been his brother Prince Frederick, but he had died childless in 1827. Next, therefore, in line was George IV's next brother, Prince William, Duke of Clarence, who now became King William IV. So what is the legacy of the man who was regent and then king for most of the opening half of this century? Unfortunately, not much of it is good. In his diary, a senior aide wrote of George IV, quote, A more contemptible, cowardly, selfish, unfeeling dog does not exist. There have been good and wise kings, but not many of them, and this I believe to be one of the worst. End quote. The Times newspaper wrote, quote, There never was an individual less regretted by his fellow creatures than this deceased king. What eye has wept for him? What heart has heaved one throb of unmercenary sorrow? If ever he had a friend, a devoted friend in any rank of life, we protest that the name of him or her has never reached us. End quote. At the beginning of the podcast on King George IV, I called him the first gentleman of England. He had style and manners, he had enthusiasm and a great imagination and an exemplary aesthetic style. Sadly, his laziness and gluttony dominated his behaviour and left his talents wasted. 
That said, he was the primary motivator in the changes in fashion that we saw in this century. It was George who abandoned wigs in favour of natural hair. To disguise his size, he wore darker colours that then became synonymous with the era. His favouring trousers over knee breeches because of comfort and high collars to hide his double chin all influenced fashion. And that Scottish visit I mentioned earlier? Tartan styling as we know it today came about from George and his influences that he had from that trip. In some ways you could say he was a very modern monarch. He understood that how good something looked would distract people from the lack of substance behind it. You just know he would have owned social media all the while floundering in Parliament. But hey, he looked good doing it. That counts, doesn't it? Like I said at the beginning, I just wanted to give this as an overview of George IV's reign. Many of the people and topics in this double episode are going to be appearing in future episodes, and I can't wait to cover them. So here endeth the episode. Uh, this is part two of two, so it makes it a total of like 17 episodes for this season. I'm actually going to be taking a one-month break. I've got lots of reading to catch up on for extra episodes that are coming up very soon. So I will actually be back at the beginning of June and have episodes for you then. And I also wanted to give a quick shout out to Cassie. Thank you very much for giving me the heads up. Uh, some of the episodes or the earlier episodes weren't appearing in Spotify in particular, and I believe it may have been some of the other podcasting apps as well. Uh, got that all fixed, the feed is corrected and everything is there, so you can always go back and check out one of the earlier episodes. I try not to embarrass myself. My website is victoriangaslamp.com. You can email me at victoriangaslamp at gmail.com with any suggestions you might have for future episodes. Happy to look into whatever might interest you as well. You are the ones listening. On Twitter at VicGaslamp and my Instagram account is victoriangaslamp post there probably a couple of times a week and I do it as a bit of a, an extra aside to the podcast itself and I'll see you next time under the gas lamp <laughs>